Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good day. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at the University of Southern California. Welcome to what I hope is our final entirely Zoom conference. Uh, We've had to do this for over a year, and we've managed to pull it off. And I want to thank our partners, uh, the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival and Jamie Cabler, who have helped us do a terrific job getting these programs out under difficult circumstances. Let me introduce our guests for the first panel. Representative Joe Kennedy III represented Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District for four terms from 2013 to 2021. He emerged as a leading national figure in the Democratic Party's pivotal debates. He is a founder of Groundwork, which focuses on boosting local community organizing efforts across the country. Ron Christie is an analyst for BBC News Worldwide. He is the founder and CEO of Christie Strategies and a veteran senior Republican advisor in both the White House and the Congress. He also served, and we're very grateful for this, as a fall 2019 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. Karen Finney is a Democratic consultant and CNN political commentator. In 2016, she was senior advisor and senior spokesperson for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Brian Goldsmith is a Democratic consultant based here in Los Angeles, an advisor, by the way, to Pete, and a close friend and advisor to Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. His extensive experience in journalism includes a variety of roles at CNN, The Atlantic, Yahoo News, and CBS, where he helped lead political coverage at CBS Evening News. So let me just start with this first question, and maybe each of you can take a crack at it. How would you rate President Biden's first 100 days and the sweep of his ambitions? And thinking of that visual last night with Vice President Harris and Speaker Pelosi sitting behind the president, a historic moment. How would you assess Harris's first 100 days? Joe, you want to start off? (laughs) Bob, thank you. Thrilled to be with you. Uh, Thrilled to be with this incredible panel and looking forward to the discussion. I think the first 100 days for the president has has gone remarkably well. And uh, particularly when it comes to domestic policy, you heard a extremely robust vision that he articulated towards the American public last night. And I think a uniquely a way that President Biden was uh, perhaps only he could have done right um, an articulation, Bob, of strengthening our democracy, um, but the need to do that by strengthening American families and the economic realities of American families in order to be able to compete with autocrats and uh, international nations and internationals here for a next generation. And I thought he did a, a remarkable job doing that. He's um, I think, been able to take the case that there has been a need for uh, structural changes in our um, economy, in our society, to the American public. We've actually seen um, that there's uh, broad-based support, including bipartisan support, for a big piece of that agenda, even if that support doesn't translate to votes in Washington. So I think it's been an effective 100 days for him. I think everyone um, in Washington is aware of the fact that the road probably gets more challenging from here. But so far, I think they've been um, up to the task. And and particularly, Bob, as as you know, um, Democratic Party isn't often, um, sometimes we can be rather vicious to our own. 
um, so far, those attacks have actually been fairly muted, which I think says an awful lot. Ron, do you disagree? Well, uh, of course, Bob, I do. Uh, I, <laughs> to my friend from Massachusetts, I, I would say that I actually go back to January 6th. And, and I think that uh, heading out of the Trump administration and heading into the Biden administration, I think all of us as Americans can look and see with horror for those of us who worked on Capitol Hill, for those who, like Joe, served as a member on Capitol Hill, and recognize that that sort of insurrection can never, ever happen in this country again. And I think that America has taken a collective pause and has taken a big sigh of relief um, from moving beyond this administration that we had for the 45th president of the United States and into the 46th. As a Republican at the same time, I'm a little disappointed in President Biden. Uh, I think we've all known him for many years. I like him. I think he's one of the more likable figures in Washington. But what he promised at the outset was to unify the country and to reach across the aisle and to work with Republicans and to listen to their ideas. And to this day, the 100th day of his administration, he's yet to talk to the Republican minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, and his outreach to Republicans have been scarce at best. And so while I think the country has taken a collective pause and a, a deep breath. I think there's certainly more by way of bipartisanship that this administration and the Republican Congress can do with Joe Biden. Don't you think it might help actually if Kevin McCarthy recognized that Biden didn't steal the election, that he was legitimately elected? Might make it easier to have a meeting. Hey, look, Bob, I am the first one to say that Republicans seem to enjoy being in a circular firing squad. And this is one of the instances of whether you like him or not, Joseph Biden was elected the 46th president of the United States. And those folks who are up there saying stop the steal and it's not legitimate only make themselves look petty and weak rather than up to the office that they were elected to serve. Karen, I'll go to you next. Just responding to that, you know, Ron, I think it is incumbent on Kevin McCarthy uh, and other Republicans who participated in January 6th to, as Bob said, acknowledge this president, we don't know that that's happened uh, in ways that would have created the space that you're talking about. But look, I think just I want to pick up on what uh, Joe said. The president walked into the chamber last night. And as you point out, Bob, what an incredible visual to see Speaker Pelosi and Kamala Harris, two women sitting there on the dais with him. Personally, I got chills. I think we've seen Kamala Harris over the last hundred days doing exactly the job of the vice president, being at the president's side, getting the job done, both behind the scenes, being out on the trail, talking about the rescue plan. We've seen her do videos to try to encourage and events, frankly, to encourage people to get vaccinated. And that's such an important part of what we saw last night was a president who could say, we came in, we put our heads down and got to work and we've delivered. And there are shots in arms. There is money in pockets. There is money going into commu communities right now. And it's unfortunate that more debt poor Republicans didn't choose to join in that process. Some did but more should have. And look, he's on very strong footing going on his building on this very bold plan that he has and that he's put forward. 
But I think it's important we remember it is a bold plan that meets the moment. We need boldness right now if we're going to tackle the kinds of challenges we're facing. Brian, you want to take a crack at this? Thanks, Bob, and and thanks to everyone for having me. I would say the administration's been very smart to stay relentlessly disciplined and focused on COVID and the economy because they recognize that unless they get those two things right, nothing else matters. I do want to comment on this kind of emerging narrative, this conventional wisdom that I think is completely wrong, that Biden campaigned as a moderate and he's governing from the far left. I just verified this with a friend of mine in the administration, uh, not Pete, by the way, but somebody who's in a position to know. There isn't a single thing in the jobs plan or the family's plan that the president proposed, with the possible exception of the expansion of the child tax credit, that Biden didn't campaign on. He campaigned on big progressive ideas. Now, I would say there's a distinction between big ideas and unpopular ideas. So he never campaigned on, you know, taking away people's private health insurance. He never campaigned on defunding the police. He never campaigned on open borders. And because he separated himself from those ideas, I think some people got the sense that, you know, he wasn't going to be a big and bold progressive leader, particularly on economic issues. Well, he's always been there. And if you look back at what he's proposed, He's governing on what he ran on. And and sometimes I think there is this false sophistication that, you know, campaign promises don't mean very much. And we start from a clean slate after people are elected. And actually, if you look at the political science, um, that's just that's just wrong. Um, Campaign promises are the best barometer in terms of what people are going to do, particularly presidents after they're elected. And and Biden is following through on what he promised. So I'm going to pick up on that. Because in truth, the metric of the first 100 days is somewhat arbitrary. It's inspired by FDR's performance in 1933. But it seems to me that Biden, in a sense, has adopted Roosevelt's priorities, which were in order, relief, recovery, and reform. For Biden, as you just suggested, it's relief from COVID, economic recovery, and then reform, which includes everything from immigration to infrastructure to climate early childhood education, and police reform and guns. Now, instead of engaging on that terrain, uh, to the mo- for the most part, the GOP is focused on a suddenly rediscovered fiscal conservatism. Oh, we can't have deficits and debt, which no one cared about uh, when Donald Trump was president, on refugees at the border, and on social issues like punitive measures against reproductive rights and trans youth and, youth and adults, and alleged woke decisions, like the withdrawal of some Dr. Seuss books, is this likely to prove effective? Which message has more resonance with the American people? And I guess in fairness, I'll start off with Ron, because he's going to disagree with me. Oh, let's see. Uh, Let me look here in the screen. That's one, two, three, four against one uh, by my count here. Could be five. Let me say this. That's all right. We have a later panel where it's mostly Republicans. Go ahead. So let me say a couple of things. I think the Biden administration, the biggest mistake that they've made, and you look at the polling, is dismantling what had happened in the previous administration as it relates to immigration. I am quite troubled that we have over 20,000 young children uh, who are in detention facilities in the United States who, through whatever message that was purveyed by this administration, decided to take a very arduous journey to the north. 
Um, a lot of women were sexually abused. A lot of people didn't actually make it. And then those who are here are in most difficult circumstances. And you look at the president's polling across the board, and it's very easy and very fair to say that this is where he is at his greatest deficit in approval, disapproval rating. I look at the spending that's been going out the door, and Bob, you're absolutely right. I mean, if it's the one thing that irritates me to death for having worked for the House Budget Committee Chairman, John Kasich, is that we actually did balance the budget from 1997 to 2001. Budget hasn't been balanced ever since then. And Republicans make a great show of saying that we're for fiscal responsibility, and yet we blew it out the door from spending in the Trump administration, just as this administration seeks to do. But what I worry about is looking at a, if you look net-net, $6 trillion of increased spending, if you put all the president's proposals together, and I say to myself, who's going to pay for this? Is it going to be Brian's kids? Or pardon me, is it going to be Brian's kids? Is it going to be Steve's kids? Who's paying for all this? But we are at our weakest when we start to come back, Bob, certainly, and talk about fiscal responsibility when we haven't practiced what we've preached for many, many years. Well, in fairness, I guess I got to say that Bill Clinton deserves some credit for that balanced budget, too. And I'm not sure the salience of the border issue right now comes anywhere near COVID in the economy. Karen, you wanted to say something. Wait, wait, let, me, let me say one last thing on that, Bob. If you look at the number of children who are coming across the border who are COVID positive that are then being released into the United States, and we talk about making sure to get shots in arms, I think it's very important that if we're going to have people come in who are undocumented, who are displaying sick symptoms of COVID, that for all of us who have to live under the restrictions that we do, that we don't allow people who aren't here legally to just be set forth in the population. So Karen, I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. Let's not be hyperbolic though. People who are coming across the border who are then are actually being quarantined. They are getting COVID tested. I see the congressman shaking his head. He may know more about some of this than I do. But this is a personal issue for me. My mother actually adopted a young woman who made that journey from Guatemala in 2015 under President Obama. And I say that because we have to remember this is a problem we've been facing for generations. This is not a problem that has to do with whether or not Joe Biden is a nice guy, uh, which is one of the narratives people have been talking about. And frankly, I do think what's a challenging issue, it's it's an issue that Vice President Harris has taken on in terms of trying to deal with the triangle countries and some of those root causes, which I think shows she's willing to take on tough issues. But I thought that the president made a very important point last night about immigration, that Republicans and Democrats, we've been at war with ourselves over how to handle this issue for too long. And there are some very good solutions on the table. So that's an area where we could move forward. To your broader point, Bob, though, about relief and recovery and reform, again, I would just remind us that part of the boldness that we're seeing, FDR, Lyndon Johnson, the Great Society, some of the civil rights legislation we saw in the 60s, we are in that kind of moment. If January 6th taught us nothing. We are in a moment in the COVID pandemic of real crisis in this country. In that recovery, I thought one of the most important things, it's the last thing I'll say on this, many of the ideas take a modern approach 
to understanding how we have to approach economic recovery now. That By that I mean understanding when two million women have been dropped out of the economy, that's bad for everybody. That's bad for America's economy. Why? Because of childcare in part. We've got to deal with childcare. So understanding when we talk about infrastructure, when we talk about strengthening families, we've got to take a very modern approach in understanding what the needs are. I lied. Last thing I really will say, who's paying for it? We're already paying for it. If you're not in that 650 people that President Biden talked about who are now worth more than $4 trillion, with a T, dollars, you got rich thanks to the richer, thanks to the 2017 Trump tax cut. But it did not trickle down. And so that means that the rest of us who pay our fair share in taxes are bearing more of the load. All we're talking about here is fundamental fairness. So it's all paid for by fundamental fairness and asking everybody in America to do their part. To this point, I think the border is not top of mind for Americans. COVID is, the economy is, but it's a moral imperative. So Joe, maybe you could respond on the border and to the larger question here. And I'd be eager for, Ron's obviously going to disagree with me uh, in part on this, but I'd be eager for, for part of his response, aside from the initial disagreement. But I, I do think that, I think it's fair to say that a Republican Party has gone adrift from its traditional anchors of small governance, low taxes, strong on defense, open markets, right? And is in the midst of reinvention. And I think fair to say that we're not entirely certain as to what that looks like at the moment. Obviously, Ron, you're some of the folks that you worked for in the past stuck very strictly to, for the most part, to those principles. A Trump administration didn't and wasn't, in my mind anyway, conservative in the traditional definition of the word. The part that does, in fact, unify a Republican party at the moment is grievance. It's victimization. And it is a theory that those unaccompanied minors that are crossing the border, they are not refugees fleeing persecution or rape or sexual assault or trauma. They are trying to invade our country as part of a systemic caravan to take over the United States. That some support for a transgender community, one of the most vulnerable communities in the United States today, Bob, as you know, the life expectancy for a black trans woman of color in the United States today is 35 years of age, 35, right? The idea that somehow girls sports is put at risk because children are being true to their own gender identity is just not true. But bills have been filed in over 30 states to try to target them rather than protect them. We are seeing the, the juxtaposition, the inversion of who is victim versus who is perpetrator consistently across Republican ideology. And that's the unifying factor. So, well, I agree with you that the border might not be top of mind for most, uh, most American citizens at the moment. That issue on victimization and identity, Republicans are 100% trying to play up. And that, I think, is what long term I think I don't think that's healthy for the United States. I certainly don't think that's healthy for a Republican Party. But that's what they got at the moment while they're trying to figure other stuff out. And the only thing I wanted to add to, to what Karen said, I thought that very well, is 
going one step a little bit above where you said, where you said what we're asking for fun is fundamental fairness. With due respect to the Biden administration, they're not even asking for necessarily the fundamental fairness. They're asking for folks that are making millions and millions of dollars a year to pay a little bit more into that, right? Like that people are still that are that that, that top percentile, not even percentile, but 0.3% of American uh, citizens that are going to be hit by that additional input or that additional tax bracket on capital gains, they're still going to do just fine. <laughs> and they're keeping more money than they're paying back in taxes. And by the way, for those that say, hey, you know, there's a, an issue here in long-term investment versus capital versus labor. I'm not so sure that is a wholly consistent argument to make when you're looking at a federal minimum wage for tipped workers at the moment that is $2.13 an hour. If you are in a state like Texas where people are operating at a federal minimum wage, you know what that tip is? That's labor. And that's getting taxed at ordinary income. But my long-term capital gains is getting taxed at 20%. That is a fundamental unfairness. And we're having a fight over whether we should pay folks $15 an hour. I think what you're seeing is that people are saying, at least the Biden administration, I agree, is saying we can be better. Ryan? To build on Joe's and and Karen's point about who's going to pay for this, um, the president who had the radical idea that capital and labor should be taxed the same uh, was Ronald Reagan, who pushed that idea as part of tax reform in 1986. Um, The top rate that uh, President Biden is going for now 39.6 is the same top rate that we had under the, you know, supposedly far more moderate presidencies of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Um, it's the same top rate we had when uh, Donald Trump was uh, saying that the economy has never grown faster under his leadership. Um, and so to Republicans in Washington who've gone so far to the right um, on these economic issues, uh, these proposals for how to pay for investments in childcare and infrastructure, healthcare and education sound radical. Uh, to mainstream Americans at a time of extraordinary inequity, this seems very reasonable and it's reflected in all the polling. And I know, you know, we have an issue with the polling after the results of the election last year, but you do see extraordinary consistency across survey after survey after survey where actually how the administration is going to pay for this stuff is a strength and it's not a weakness. And I think that they should lean into that. Um, and I'm glad to see that the president did last night. Go ahead, Ron. I know we're not going to agree here. I want to move on, but go ahead. I, I just want to go back to Joe. And I, I think that you and I fundamentally would agree on this. I mean, the, the John Kasichs of the world, the Rob Portmans, my mentors, uh, certainly President George W. Bush, for whom I served for four years, he looks at immigration reform as one of his biggest regrets. And I think that is certainly something that we as a party really missed a great opportunity to address something that we haven't dealt with since 1983. But I would say to my uh, colleagues here that look at the numbers. Look at the number of votes that President Biden won. You're talking somewhere in the realm of about 42,000 votes in three states. Look at the fact that we have a 50-50 Senate and look at the fact that Speaker Pelosi is only has a governing majority by a sliver. My sense here of talking to people and talking to my students is that this is sure a lot coming on right now without a governing mandate. And my sense here also is that it might be too much too soon. And Bob, I, I will toss it back to you, but only to say just this. Um, if you look at the amount of money that we propose to spend, is that really where the American electorate is? Or is this the sort of wish bag of 
thoughts and ideas that Democrats have proposed for decades that they're now using COVID as the opportunity to push them through the Congress. I was going to say something, but I'm going to let Karen say it. Well, I'll just start with, I think when we're talking about the idea of cutting child poverty in half, yes, the American people are for that. Mm -hmm. I think when we're talking about making sure kids can go to school and making sure that, as we saw in this pandemic, some kids don't have a home. We got to do something about building homes and don't have access to broadband. Yes, the American people are for that. And frankly, having spent a lot of time in 2020 doing polling work with another distinguished colleague, Cornell Belcher, yes. And I think it's important to remember the popularity. Brian mentioned these are all the things that President Biden campaigned on. They're also all, poll after poll after poll shows, widely popular still with the American people. That was what I was going to say. And um, Can I jump in real quick? I, I'm sorry, just real quick. I don't... I, I, don't I, be I, sorry. No, no, but I'm, I'm also sensitive to the fact that, Ron, I, I assume you're on this panel beating up the three of us because uh, you can take it, right? Um, and more than hold your own here. But I'd say two things, right? The numbers with regards to the border are the numbers. What that is also reflective of is that the Trump administration didn't actually try to solve this problem. I was in the Northern Triangle on a Republican-led trip years ago and with an under an Obama administration, and these challenges as articulated were known. And rather than try to solve it, you saw, at least in my mind anyway, a Trump administration that tried to exploit it for a political gain and this question around identity. And it was, if you, again, you go back and read some of the reports from the end of a Trump administration, they knew the numbers then were going to rise. <laughs> and they were ready to take advantage of it, again, by not solving this problem. So there's no question it's an issue, period. It's, I think, a moral reflection on our country to try to address it. But then let's address it, one. The second part around the, the issue on the investments that the president and his administration are talking about, it, it's a lot, without question. That gets to the fact that we have gone decades without doing them. And that American government under both parties, their reliance on markets to solve these problems did not work. Because if they did work, if that articulation of trickle-down economics or the, the structures of that, again, to some extent, both parties had engaged in, were sufficient at driving access to healthcare, access to mental health, access to broadband, technological engagement, access to quality education, we wouldn't have to do this. But it didn't work. And so if it hasn't worked, how much longer are we going to sit there and say, let's keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result, which I think is somebody's our definition of insanity? Or do we sit there and say, hey, you know what? The market structure hasn't worked and it's actually not structured to work. There's places in this where market failures actually happen. Government's got to step in and catalyze it. So how much longer are we going to ask kids to grow up in poverty? And I think what the Biden team and others have said is like, enough, let's time to try. I want to move on. But Brian, I want to give you a word here if you if you want to come in. Yeah, just very quickly. I, I would say there's a difference between uh, the number of dollars and what the dollars are actually being spent on. If you spend $2 trillion on a corporate tax cut that's largely used for stock buybacks, that doesn't pay for itself, that blows up the deficit, that's one thing. If you're spending $2 trillion on infrastructure, 
and and I know gonna, there's going to be the criticism about roads and bridges versus other kinds of infrastructure, you know, replacing lead pipes, um, the human investments they're talking about. I think all of that counts as fundamental infrastructure. And and economists left, right, and center agree that that pays for itself to some degree in a way the tax cuts for the wealthy never have and never will. And so I think, you know, it, it is not an apples to apples comparison about, you know, this administration spending two trillion on this, that administration spending two trillion on that. You have to look at what the money's actually being spent on, and the American people get this. I, I, I can only say one thing, right? If you look at the transportation and infrastructure bill, and you look at the percentage that are going for roads and bridges, six percent, six percent. What is the largest majority? in the infrastructure bill going towards electric cars and charging stations. If we want to have an honest debate, and I think the four of us, if you put us in a room for about two hours, I think we could figure out a lot of these things that are going on. But let's be honest and say dollar to dollar, 6% of a multi-trillion dollar effort is not going to bridges. It's not going to replace pipes. The largest portion of this, and I showed this to my students last night, I had bar graph and said, look where the number one spending, look where the number two spending is. You have to go down several layers to get to bridges and roads. So I would just say we should be honest about dollar for dollar what we're talking about, where these resources are going. Sounds like a great argument to make it five trillion instead of three. I don't know how I knew you were going to go there. So let's move on to see how any of this is going to be enacted. Uh, the president and the Democrats passed COVID relief and may seek to pass and may have to seek to pass infrastructure and in the new American family plan through a process called reconciliation, which doesn't require 60 votes in the Senate. Two questions. Did Obama learn something that is shaping this strategy from, uh, did Obama, did Biden learn something that is shaping this strategy from the Obama experience. And given the popularity of these measures among Americans generally, even Republicans, is this approach a betrayal or a fulfillment of the president's call for bipartisanship? Who wants to start? Um, Can I start with a story? (laughs) The story is President Obama waiting and waiting, um, as I'm sure the the congressman knows uh, better than any of us, for a bipartisan consensus to form around the Affordable Care Act. This was legislation that from its uh, conception was designed to be bipartisan. It was based on the framework of what Mitt Romney had done in Massachusetts and what the Heritage Foundation uh, had designed several years before. And Max Baucus and other uh, moderate Senate Democrats were convinced that their reasonable Senate Republican colleagues, given the framework of this bill, given what they had said in the past and supported in the past, um, would would move forward and would come on board. And this culminated in an Oval Office meeting with President Obama, Max Baucus, and Chuck Grassley, the Republican they were working on the hardest, uh, in which Grassley, you know, repeated objection after objection after months of negotiation. And finally, President Obama said, well, let me just get this straight for a second. What if I gave you everything that you're asking for today? At that point, would you be for the bill? And Grassley said something like, I don't know, or I'm not sure. And at that point, the jig was up. And I think it was pretty obvious to everyone then, just as it's obvious um, to most Democrats now, that, you know, with the exception of two or three Senate Republicans, if Biden's for it, they're going to be against it. 
That is the McConnell way. That is their new posture. And, and their definition of bipartisanship um, doesn't include anything that any Democratic president would support. Um, and so I think that's why they're operating um, with the realization that, you know, getting 60 votes on any of this stuff is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Is this a betrayal of Biden's pledge of unity and trying to find a bipartisan approach? The administration says, look, we're appealing to Republicans as well as Democrats. They just don't happen to be in the Congress. They happen to be voters out there in the country. I would argue no, because in part, there is no unity without accountability. And that means accountability for January 6th. That means accountability for what Joe just mentioned about years of trying to suggest that the market's going to take care of it. And for, you know, previous administrations who literally have not taken care of these problems that I think in many ways were so brutally laid bare in this pandemic. Um, So I would say, again, he's keeping himself accountable to the campaign promises. And one of those promises, by the way, was I'll do what it takes to get it done. Whether that's executive, I will use the power of the presidency. Now, he is also a creature of the Senate in many ways. Vice President Harris just came from the Senate. So I have no doubt they will do what they can to try to find deals where they can be made. And I thought it was so powerful that he laid down a very specific marker when it comes to criminal justice reform, calling on Congress to get it done in a month by the one-year anniversary uh, of George Floyd's death. But with regard to the larger package, of course, there, you know, the conflict, I think, as Brian points out, is a symptom of the times. I think what, what the president told us very clearly during the campaign and in this first hundred days, my job is to get it done because the American people are going to hold him accountable to that, both he, frankly, and Democrats accountable. So if Republicans can't get on board, they're going to have to find other ways to get it done. Listen, I think that Biden did learn the Obama lesson, and that's why he's moved the way he's moved, uh, number one. Number two, I think that they are trying to redefine, we'll see whether it's successful, bipartisanship, not by the votes that they get in the House or the Senate, but by the support they get out in the country from Democrats, independents, and Republicans. But I want to go back to something Ron said. The infrastructure bill uh, includes massive investments, not just in roads and bridges, but in rail, transit, airports, electric cars, climate, child care, and long-term care for seniors. Joe, does this make sense? Is this infrastructure? Darn straight. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. And look, we think about infrastructure traditionally as how you're able to make basic thing. You make our society, our livelihoods work. How do you get to school? How do you get your, to job, phones, utilities, etc.? I think the observation that the Biden administration and others have made is for many of us, like myself with young kids, for over the course of the past year, 
you realize that it's awfully hard to work from home with two little kids there too, constantly. That if you are serious about them trying to make economic realities in this economy work, and I actually think Ron and I would probably agree on, on much of this because what we saw for generations for Americans was that a single wage earner, normally dad, could afford, could earn enough to pay for a mortgage and a house and a middle-class livelihood while mom took care of the kids. What that was, was in fact a massive subsidy for childcare. What we've got at the moment is in order to attain some semblance of middle-class for most folks, you need two wage earners because the cost of housing, particularly in urban centers, has gone up dramatically. You got two wage earners, somebody, you got to pay for somebody to have childcare. The average cost of childcare in Massachusetts It costs more, Bob, to care for a child from birth to five year by year than to send your kid to college. It just does not work. And by the way, that money is the money that most families would be able to save for a down payment on a house, which is the largest asset that you have. And that's how you gain wealth. And that's a nest egg to your kids. And you can't do that because you're paying for it from childcare. And so all you're doing is paying rent. And now that middle class becomes further and further along or up far. And finally, Study after study shows that it is literally the best bang for your buck that government can spend with regards to ROI. And not just for mom and dad, not just for your child, but for that child's grandchildren. There's a return on investment. And so when we turn around and look at that and say, hey, how can we make it so that families can participate in the economy, have some semblance of economic stability, build wealth and for God's sake, be able to come home at the end of the night or the end of the week and not think, I am one accident, slip at work, and somebody runs a stop sign away from financial catastrophe. That is essentially what this entire structure is about, about trying to provide some semblance of resiliency here for the American public. And so what does that mean? Yeah, we got a lot of stuff to fix because we haven't invested in it for a long time. Long-term care is astronomically expensive. Why? Because we haven't done anything about it. Child care is ridiculously expensive. Why? Because we haven't done anything about it. Roads and bridges, we've got $4 trillion infrastructure debt in that alone. Why? Because we haven't done anything about it. So now we're doing something about it. And now you're getting folks saying, well, on the one hand, you're not doing enough. And on the other hand, you're doing too much. What? Pick one. But how do you criticize us for trying to solve these problems and be both too big and too small at the same time? I think that this massive expansion of broadband is the TVA of the 21st century. Oh, yeah. And ironically, it's, it's, going to benefit, <laughs> it's going to benefit red states far more than blue states because that's where the broadband doesn't work. Ron, you want to say something? I do. So, Joe, I hate to say it, but I think this is a moment of bipartisan consensus here. <laughs> How about that? I mean, there you go. <laughs> but, I, but I agree with you. And, and you look at what we did with balancing the budget with Kasich and we had refundable uh, child care credits. I think it's important. I think it's a, it's just ex- so extraordinarily important given the climate that we're in. And one of the things from the speech last night that really ticked me off, and I'm sure that you all saw this, is when the president said that he wanted to cut child poverty in half and none of the Republicans stood up and none of the Republicans clapped. And I thought to myself, if I'm a Democrat, that's my ad right there, right? Of like, God, could you be any more illustrative of not giving a bleep about people. And Joe, you're right. I mean, I I think that you're one step away from a really bad situation. If you're living in Cambridge, if you're living in Washington, if you're living in Los Angeles, that 
the cost of living is so high and yet childcare costs are so expensive. No one talks about long-term care. I mean, I'm a healthcare geek. No one talks about long-term care. No one talks about chronic disease. The amount of money that the federal government puts out for Medicare, also looking at Medicaid for long-term care, it's through the ceiling. But I want to go back to what Brian's story was. And I think it's important for our audience to understand about reconciliation and how, Bob, to your original question of did Biden learn from the Obama example? Reconciliation is a process that's used to either lower or raise uh, revenue and also to address uh, the national debt. And you have to have a budget resolution in place. And if you go back to what the Obama administration did with the Affordable Care Act, they said, this is not a tax. This is not a tax. We're not taxing anyone. And then when it came to how can we get this through the Senate in such a way that it's not filibustered, that it's a simple majority vote, then suddenly there was a tax that the chief justice agreed with that analysis. I look at what the Biden administration is trying to do, and they're trying to go bold and they're trying to go big. And I say to all my distinguished panelists here, where's the budget resolution? You need a budget resolution in place first. You need reconciliation instructions that will raise or lower revenue. Then you have to pass it through ways and means. Then you have to pass it through Senate finance. Then it goes to the respective chambers and then it's voted upon. And we're operating under a fiction that there's a budget resolution in place. And so we can talk about going big and going bold but we're also betraying the rules that the representatives and the senators have in place to ensure that you just don't ram through something of this magnitude. Like the Bush tax cuts or we went through through reconciliation. reconciliation. We went through reconciliation, Bob. We do not have a budget resolution in place. And in fact, Paul Ryan would be the one to tell you the former speaker of the house that they passed a budget resolution, did not have a similar protection in the Senate, and went back and did it again. Why? Because they went through regular order. We're not going through regular order in the House and the Senate right now. Yeah, I I guess I would say that I don't think the country gives a hoot about this. I think there are other problems here. Uh, They don't give a hoot. That's why we have elected representatives, Bob. I don't want to, I want to get to it in a minute, but because I think there are some problems that Biden faces ahead. But let me ask first, if there are any prospects for progress on three seemingly intractable issues, immigration reform, guns, police reform, and I could add voting rights, any chance that we're going to see any movement on any of these? I'm going to jump in and take police reform because this is an issue I've done a lot of work on. Again, I mentioned some of the research work that I did during the election, and we found that among Trump voters, white women, Trump voters, when you tell them what is in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, one, they agreed because they understand the shared value. Again, accountability. It's not about bad apples. It's about people need to be held accountable for their actions. And the second thing I would say, so people agree. Across, there was a broad agreement with the specifics in the legislation when people know banning chokeholds, you know, what certain things mean. Um, why do we need qualified immunity? What does that mean? Obviously, these are a couple of the sticking points. So not only is there broad agreement across the spectrum in the, in, around these initiatives, they were shocked. That to find out 
their Republican Congress members didn't support it. When we talked to them in focus groups about here's what's in the legislation, here's, well, gee, let's look at who's for it and who's not been for it. They were shocked. Why wouldn't you be for that? So I say that to say, and Bob, to your earlier point about redefining, um, you know, bipartisanship, the American people, again, there is broad support for the ideas in policing reform. I think there is a genuine, I didn't agree with anything Tim Scott said last night. I was rather appalled, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, by most of what he said. However, I think he is someone who is trying to lead on this issue. We know there's a a coalition uh, on the Democratic side that is really trying, I think, in in good faith effort to hammer this out, hammer out those differences. And I just want to, we've talked a lot about economic issues, but I have to tell you, for black and brown Americans, This is an economic issue. If I'm not safe in my own life, in my neighborhood, if I'm worried every time my child walks out the door, I've had my own profiling experiences with the police, I don't feel safe. Then that impacts my ability to live my life, to contribute to the economy, to be a full participating citizen in our society. So I think this is a top of mind issue. We also, last thing I'll say, found that concerns about racism is a top concern for a lot of Americans. Different ideas about how we get there, but even a lot of independents and moderate Republicans do believe that there is racism in this country and that we need to do something about it because it is strangling our progress, and our prosperity. Tim Scott, the the senator from South Carolina who did give the Republican response last night, is negotiating with Karen Bass uh, in the House, House Democrat, uh, who was on the vice presidential shortlist, to see if they can come up with a compromise bill. That's the one place where I think we might make some progress. Immigration reform and guns and voting reform seems very tough to me. Maybe I'm wrong. Anybody think that we got some Joe? Bob, I think those are are hard. I think there's a possibility that reform goes through, but um, given some of the context of those issues, you know, those have been intractable in in Washington for quite some time. I think there's going to be a huge push from a Democratic Party uh, on this, on issues around the filibuster, and particularly, um, Bob, as additional pieces of legislation move their way through the process at a state level, particularly in conservative states that lead to the potential disenfranchisement of, or disenfranchisement of millions of predominantly black and brown voters. I think the rhetoric's going to come up in Washington because you're going to have a chance to not wholly undo that, but to undo part of that with federal legislation. And I expect there's going to be a, a push there from some civil rights leaders and others that say, Hey, Democrats, you guys choose not to do this. That is a choice. But you have the ability to actually unwind some of these restrictions that have been passed in places like Georgia and probably places like Texas with federal legislation. If you choose not to, 
you are aiding and abetting this. And that's going to make for, I think, a, a spirited um, and, and difficult um, couple of months. One, one thing here, and I, I defer to, to some others on that because I'm sure that they've given that some thought too. One thing where I think there, that is potentially big, Bob, that doesn't get as much attention, which is also where it can be big um, and big and bipartisan, is actually a large package to strategically re-engage China, which, um, and I think some others on the panel will, will know something about this too, but that is being led out of the Senate by the majority leader, Senator Schumer, Todd Young, the former NRSC, so the National uh, the Senatorial Campaign Committee chairman is the Republican lead on that. He's all in. And this is one that, if passed, is actually, it is a big bill. It addresses a whole bunch of strategic imperatives for the United States. But if that thing passes, that, that's a big deal. It's not getting the headlines that some of these others are, which also, as I think as all of us would agree, gives it more of a chance of actually passing because it's actually, it's not garnering the media attention because there's more consensus to it. But there's a lot of hard work that's being put into it. And it's a big deal. And I think it's worth acknowledging and kick it to anybody that knows a little bit more on that one as well. Uh, give Brian and Ron a minute and I'm going to try and squeeze in two or three more questions before we go to uh, uh, audience questions. Brian, anything to add? Well, I, I agree with what Joe said. I, I think there's going to be enormous pressure, rightly so, on Democrats to move on voting rights. Um, that is an existential issue, not just for the party, but for our democracy. And I do think, not unlike uh, uh, Max Baucus, uh, Joe Manchin uh, needs to go through the motions of attempting to build a bipartisan consensus, not in the country, but in the Congress on these issues. And I hope I'm wrong, but if and when that fails, um, I think there's still going to be more than enough time for the Democrats to say that, you know, if the filibuster doesn't apply to lower court judges, if the filibuster doesn't apply to Supreme Court justices, the filibuster also should not apply to the fundamental voting rights of our fellow Americans, particularly people who've been discriminated against historically, particularly people who are the most disadvantaged. And so I think there's a chance um, of the the slim Democratic majority uh, moving on that, and they ought to. Ron, I got to give you a chance, although I want to move to a question where I'm actually going to kind of take the Republican side, to your surprise. <laughs> I don't buy that, Bob, but I, I, I'll, I'm game. Let me say this. I, I agree with Karen. I, I think that if you're going to look at an, a domestic piece of legislation that's going to move, I think Senator Scott and Senator Booker working with Lindsey Graham and, and, and working uh, with Karen Bass, I think they're going to find an agreement. I just, I just think there's too much at stake for both sides. I think Joe's broader point is a significant one, and we spend so much of our time talking about domestic policy. I think if you look in Afghanistan, if you look at China, I think there's broad bipartisan support to hem in the Chinese for their aggressions that they've been taking in the South China Sea uh, that has strong bipartisan support. And I also think Republicans, after 21 years, are weary of war in the Middle East and in Afghanistan. And I think there's bipartisan consensus that it's time to bring our troops home. Now, let me ask this pro-Republican question, Ron. To pay for the sweeping legislative priorities, as Joe pointed out, the Biden administration is proposing, among other things, a capital gains tax around 40 percent actually could be higher than that because of the add-on for the Affordable Care Act. Now, let me ask about the politics of this. The administration says that this capital gains rate would only affect 
the top 3%. But Republicans say that's not true, for example. If you sell a home you've lived for a long time in California, New York, a lot of other places where close suburban races may decide control of Congress because your $200,000 house could now be worth $2.5 million. And you could face a whopping tax bill of 55 or 56 percent in states like California or New York. Is this capital gains proposal smart? Who's right on the politics and policy here? Bob, finally, a question for me. Um, I don't think this is smart uh, cap gains policy, but let's really look at the underlying issue, right? You, you mentioned uh, California, you mentioned New York, I would dare say Cambridge and Boston, where a lot of people have invested a lot of money in their homes and those have appreciated over the years. I go back to what we did several years ago with the deductions with SALT, the state and local taxes. And I think it's really hammering people um, in these uh, wealthy communities that might not have much capital themselves. And it's put them in a situation of the politicians at the state and the local level are hemorrhaging assets, resources. Now, my friends here might say that these are vital resources that were necessary, but they now find themselves in a shortfall and they're looking for additional revenue. I don't believe in this session of Congress, you're going to find consensus. I mean, I talked to Joe Manchin about this last week. He is not in favor of significantly raising uh, the capital gains rate. Uh, He's not significantly in favor of raising taxes on corporations. So the question becomes, can there be bipartisan consensus to find additional revenue? And my sense as a Republican, you're going to find unified support in the House and the Senate against doing so. And then the question becomes, what can Pelosi and Schumer do with their slim majorities? Joe, what do you think? (laughs) Raising taxes isn't exactly hugely popular with anybody. Um, But I think we also, getting back to to Ron's point earlier, you make these investments, you have a choice of then saying, we're essentially borrowing the money or we're going to pay for them. And who has the ability to pay for them? Karen articulated this earlier. And the president did last night in his speech. He's saying there's been a massive accumulation of wealth, not only over the past year, but over the course of the past decade. Let's, Let's take some of that and make sure that we actually invest it to make our country more competitive. Bob, if I'm not mistaken, and and Karen and Brian can can correct me here, Ron, you perhaps too. I think that first the proposal was to increase the capital gains rate after a million dollars. So the first million actually doesn't get hit with the increased rate. It's the second million. The point I would also raise is, look, if somebody bought a house for $250,000 and now selling it for $2 million, one, good investment. Two, congratulations. Three, if we're asking you to pay more for that, uh, that other slice, that's in, in order to make sure that we, in fact, can pay for and invest in the American public in the way in which we need to invest in the American public. That's what I would also refer to as, in, in part, like the responsibilities of citizenship. We have a defense department for a reason. They provide for our collective defense. We're also, part of that constitution, if I remember correctly, is promoting the general welfare. That takes money. That takes resources. And the last piece on this, and Ron, you can, can correct me if I'm wrong, but last time I checked, our country was founded to provide every citizen with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That, that ability to pursue some sense of fulfillment 
comes back to literally the basic responsibility of government. And that takes resources. But I don't think anybody would argue or most folks would argue at this point that providing you the basic necessities of life such that you come home every night terrified of what tomorrow might bring because you are that close to financial destitution is really a pathway to the pursuit of happiness. This is going to take investment. The president's made a choice to say, we're going to ask those that have benefited economically to share some of that so that we can all be better off and take on these massive challenges like China. And if you don't think we need to do that, then I would also point back to the economic gains that China has gone through over the course of the past decade and say, hey, if you think we can just keep doing this and think that we're going to get ahead, great. If you think that it's going to take all of us to step up and give a little bit more in whichever way we can, I think that's the bet that the president's making, and I think he made a persuasive case. Okay, so we don't want to pile on to Ron here, but <laughs> Brian, Karen, because I actually think this could become a political problem in states like California, Massachusetts, New York. New York, Connecticut. I think to your uh, narrower question, Bob, um, I think you raise a very legitimate issue, um, particularly in these high-cost, high-tax states. I think there are some things that could be done over the course of the legislative process that could um, fix this. One is bring back the full SALT deduction. Um, that's the way we've operated in this country for... That's the state and local tax deduction from your federal income tax. Yeah. Exactly, which is now capped at $10,000. It was done explicitly uh, by President Trump um, to go after the blue state, to punish uh, blue state voters. Um, in the spirit of American unity, I think that should be brought back. Um, second, I think the extraordinary situation you're describing about a house that was 200000 is now worth $2 million. You could deal with that one-time extraordinary gain by carving out, you know, maybe from $1 million to $2 million, a one-time gain, but then the second year dropping the cap back down to $1 million and having the, the higher rate apply. I don't mean to get too wonky, but I think there are things that can be done to carve out precisely the extraordinary situation you described without actually violating the principle, which is, I think, a very legitimate one, uh, with which even conservative economists now agree, that there's really no reason for capital to be taxed at a lower rate than labor. But of course, without Joe Manchin, this can't pass. And I say that as someone who wrote a line in George McGovern's acceptance speech in 1972, the money made by money should be taxed at the same rate as money made by men. And the fact that I could say men tells us that we were living in a different era then. I want to step back from the wonkery and ask a bigger question. The pundits assumed almost universally that Joe Biden would be a transitional president. Instead, he may be a transformational one. Did any of you see this coming? And anyone can start. Well, I'll start by just saying yes, because that's how he campaigned. He campaigned as someone, I think for many people, recognized he, we needed someone, an adult in the room, if you will, a lot of conversations like that during the election to transition us forward. Some said back, but I prefer to say forward, back to some version of regular order if you will. But certainly, I think we all believed, and particularly for those of us, I worked very hard on uh, the Georgia special elect, the Georgia elections, thought, believed, if we could get those two seats, 
he would have the opportunity to be a transformational president. And look, I wanted to say one thing about that, which is that I think we're all talking about time. Because a lot of what you've talked about, Bob, he's got to get these things done quickly. And not just for not just because people are hurting, no question. You know, it was important to get the money out the door quickly. As someone who worked in the Clinton administration, let me tell you, we sure learned a lesson. You know, we thought we'd get healthcare done in the first hundred days. Oh well. So but also because of the pressures of the midterms, a lot of the things that we're talking about in order for him to be a transformational president. And I think what he's done is lay out a transformational agenda. Again, one I believe has broad support in the country. He's got to get it done very quickly. So I think to the quick answer, yes, but the timing really matters. Anybody want to add anything to that? I would just say very briefly, I think transformation depends on both legislation and implementation. And I think progressives have a special responsibility when you're growing government programs to make sure that they're implemented efficiently and effectively. Luckily, there's a team in place led by Ron Klain that really that really gets this, but that's going to be a burden and a challenge going forward. And Bob, just very, very briefly on that, and I think Karen hinted at this, but just quickly, the results of Georgia fundamentally transformed this presidency, right? Because we went from, and to think about that, right? It was a couple thousand votes from an election in November that brought Senator Perdue to underneath the margin that he needed for a recount. That literally, that margin was what set up this entire trajectory. Because if you don't have 50 votes in the Senate, this is an entirely different legislative framework and agenda for a Biden presidency, right? So I agree with Karen 100%. It's how he campaigned and he now has the ability to execute on it. But let's be clear that the, the circumstances have allowed him to do that in a way in which we were pretty close to not having that, which is ends up being almost binary, right, in terms of the ramification. There are several versions of the first question I'm going to ask, one from Michael Rogers, one from Roseanne Stanley. It's basically, how can this administration deal with getting policies done, uh, especially controversial ones, ones you can't do through reconciliation, with Republicans seeming not to be willing to work with Democrats on anything? Is doing away with the filibuster a good idea? And I would add, is it a practical idea? No. (laughs) No. I think that the filibuster has been in place uh, to make sure that the heat and octane of moving legislation through the House of Representatives goes to the Senate where they have time to deliberate on this. This should be a body that you have broad bipartisan support. I think 60 votes is there for a reason. Um, it's so interesting when you talk about Senator Scott's uh, speech last night where his police reform bill was filibustered by the Democrats. And yet, and still, you hear the president say that the filibuster is Jim Crow 2.0 or Jim Eagle. And yet the Democrats used a very similar uh, procedure to deny an African-American senator the opportunity to pass police reform. But yet, having said that, Bob, I think that there really are, and, and I think Joe, Brian, and Karen and I have touched on so many areas that I think that we can have bipartisan consensus but for having one who's watched this for 30 years, and, and there are certainly those here who've been at this longer than I have, 
you have to actually talk to people and reach your hand across the aisle to get things done. And I don't think they're talking to each other and they are literally playing to their political base than doing what's best for the country. Just very quickly, I'd say, I think the problem is the only way you change that dynamic, I think one of the tools has to be more partnership with the American people, frankly. You know, one of the messages that we talked a lot about in 2020 was to say, you have a right to vote and you have a right to ask for the receipts. Did the people you vote for do what you asked them to do? And so I think trying to build outside coalitions and trying to use, this was something Obama talked about. I don't think he always utilized it particularly effectively, but to really try to build that outside, inside strategy. That may, in addition to the filibuster, that may be doing away with it. That may be the one other option. Joe? So two points to this. One, yeah, I do away with the filibuster. Important for folks to remember, the filibuster only matters when one party has control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency, right? If there's split divided government, it doesn't. And I would end it because for a variety of reasons, but I would rather operate under a system where the party that wins elections is able to execute an agenda rather than what happened back in 2016, which is you had a president that actually didn't win a popular vote. So I'd do the electoral college too, but was still able to execute an agenda that the American public actually specifically did not actually vote for. One, two, and with respect, Ron, because you, you bring up the point about the rules and the structures. The fact is, is that a Republican party that I articulated before, many of those, those pillars, small government, open markets, uh, strong on defense, can be implemented by those, those goals can be largely affected through the reconciliation process because they end up largely being financial and fiscal in nature. And so they can execute on their agenda and then hold back societal issues of social or cultural issues, right? I would argue civil rights, LGBT rights, some of the issues on climate, et cetera, where they get to in voting rights to say, well, they're not financial, they're not budgetary. So therefore we can't address them. They end up being a cornerstone to a democratic agenda, which at this point is also trying to make our country more little democratic. So you're operating under a series of rules that literally accentuates the, the, uh, the older formulation of a Republican party, but limits the ability of a democratic party to deliver on core aspects of our agenda. And if they're saying, Hey, you got to follow the rules because those are the rules. Well, if that's the way the rules are written, <laughs> the, the rules need to change to actually enable the American public to have the people that you want leading the country, and then, as Karen said, to hold them accountable. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question. It's from Christian Patel. Do you think the American Families Plan, the third big tranche of the of the Biden agenda, will be able to pass Congress? That's the one that requires a lot of lot of extra taxes. Look, I think, and and others can jump in here, but uh, I think the reality is that for a Biden administration, this next bill is as, as critical as the Trump tax cut was to Donald Trump after their failure to deliver on healthcare repealing the ACA, they knew they needed to deliver on that tax cut. I think Biden administration knows that we have to, and the Democrats in in Congress know that we have to deliver. They have to deliver on this next package. So I I think the bill is going to pass. I think the question ends up being what's in it. And is that, a trillion dollar package? Is it a $2 trillion package? Is it a $3 trillion package? And what are the, what's inside? But I do expect that that vessel is going to move. Here's a, a, a kind of Republican leaning anonymous question. 
H.R. 1, so-called For the People Act, has a few provisions that Republicans will never support, namely banning voter ID. Uh, there is so much good in the bill that's essential for democracy, but it seems to have overreached in a way that will make reforms nearly impossible to pass. Can Democrats figure out a way to make some form of voter ID acceptable or at least tolerable to their own party? You know, the problem that I always have with this conversation is that we have to remember when we talk about voter ID, what's happening on the ground? What's the experience of an individual who tries to go get that ID? Traditionally, as we saw in Alabama, it might be that the offices where you would get such an ID are closed just weeks before an election or just around the time, the deadline, to get that identification, making it harder to actually get it. Or there's a cost association associated with getting that ID, which again, disenfranchises or makes it harder for certain groups of people to actually get the ID. And when we talk about which IDs, student IDs in some places can't be used, can be used, military ID in some instances, or have been denied in some states. So I think this is, I always think this is such a trap question because part of the problem is not just, it's not so simple as, well, you need an ID to drive. Of course you do. But getting an ID to exercise a fundamental right, how do we implement that in a way where it is as easy as possible and simple? So it's really the implementation where I think this whole argument starts to fall apart. I would come in and say, I find this, this whole discussion to be so insulting to people of color, right? If you look at the Georgia law and you look at what they've done with adding uh, drop boxes, what they've done for adding extended voting hours, and they, what they've done for having extended voting on Sundays, this is far less restrictive than the president's home state of Delaware or New York. And yet and still, if I want to fly in Delta Airlines, I have to produce an ID. If I want to go to the Atlanta Braves game, I have to produce an ID to get my tickets at will call. But yet this notion that blacks are so stupid or so inferior or so incapable of getting an ID, and you look at some of the provisions that are out there of you can show a utility bill, you can show that you are paying some sort of um, bill in your jurisdiction that doesn't have to be an ID, but you look overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, nearly 70% of blacks in this country believe that we should have a voter ID to vote. You look at Canada, you look at Mexico, you look at Israel, you look at the developed countries in the world, and they have a voter ID requirement. So the notion that we are disenfranchising people by saying that they are who they are, I find highly insulting and offensive. Are you insulted, Karen? No, I'm a thousand percent not. And having had to spend a lot of time with elderly black relatives in Southern Virginia, small towns like Martinsville, um, throughout the years, it's obviously very different now than it used to be, trying to explain some of these things, not at all insulted. And again, what you just heard from Ron is the classic argument. And the point he did not get to is, what actually happens on the ground when people try to go and get those IDs? Of course, people are not stupid, Ron. The problem is they make it harder for people to also 
obtain those IDs when they get there. And driving a car, going to a, a, a sports game, that's, hey, that's living the good life. I'm talking about basic, fundamental, constitutional right to vote. You should not have to pay to be able to exercise that. And, and you don't have to. And, and I would say to you, where my offense comes mm-hmm. from, as, as a direct descendant of slaves, as one whose grandparents had to have the Ku Klux Klan burning crosses on their lawn for having a plantation that was given down to my family after the Emancipation Proclamation, somehow, oddly enough, they were able to receive an ID and they grew up in the worst of worst Jim Crow, the worst of the worst segregation. And yet, you know what they did? They marched, they fought on, and they passed measures that allowed people, the younger generation, my brother and myself, but I just can't sit here and sit and listen and say, well, oh no, well, they're charging people. No, the legislation that specifically passed does not have people paying for IDs. That is a false argument. And that's one that the Democrats, if you want to throw that at me, Karen, I'll throw it back at you and say, that's a false argument. And again, that's insulting. Ron, chapter and verse, we could go through this. We don't have all day. Again, descendant of slaves, right back at you, brother. And uh, I think the point is about making it easier for everyone to vote, not harder, and maybe giving people, being able to give somebody a glass of water while they're standing in line. And you know the fallacy of that argument. The fallacy of that argument, Bob, one quick thing, you are not allowed to electioneer. And so she's saying, oh, allowing people to have water. No, that's called electioneering, and that is prohibited in many states in the United States. So let's not talk about uh, people handing out water when, in fact, poll workers and election monitors can hand out water. Well, when you have eight or 10-hour lines, and I'm just going to say this myself, people should be able to be given water. I agree. we We could go on and on with this, but I'm going to close this off with an anonymous question we have here that I think is quite very, quite good, quite interesting. How different a president has Joe Biden been in his first hundred days than President Obama was in his first hundred days? All right, I'm going to surprise everybody. I think he's been a lot more transformative. I think President Biden has learned from being the vice president of the United States to President Obama. And I think he's pushing bigger earlier. I think he recognizes the unique landscape that he has that I think that we all agree that you only have so much political capital as a president to spend. And I think President Biden's spending it right now, where I think that President Obama was a lot more cautious uh, in the first year or so of his administration. Give each of you about 30 seconds and then we have to stop. Joe? I think the context and the framework it was uh, is obviously very, very different. And I think all of us would probably agree here that the single biggest variable for for politics is timing, right? And timing is absolutely everything. In the context, when, when President Obama came to power, it was, or came into office, he was dealing with putting out a number of massive fires that required him to use and leverage political capital in ways that were not wholly um, popular with either a Democratic base or Republican Party. But the circumstances required him to do that. Could they have been done better or differently? Sure, that's for a debate for history, right? Um, but the the reality is, and this is why it's hard to compare one president with the other. That being said, I think the Biden administration has done a heck of a job in the first hundred days. Hold on. (laughs) President Obama had to continue a policy of bailing out financial institutions in order to prevent a second Great Depression. President Obama had to bail out auto companies in order to prevent the Midwest from going under. President Obama had to take all sorts of politically 
challenging positions in order to get out from the the mess he inherited. Uh, the mess that President Biden inherited is is different in kind, um, just as challenging in its own way. But the the solutions um, are much more um, immediately palatable and popular than what President Obama had to deal with. I think they were both bold in their own ways. And I, I would say one difference, perhaps, is that, you know, uh, with the benefit of timing, as Joe mentioned, uh, Joe Biden is uh, pretty clear eyed about the challenge he faces uh, with congressional Republicans in a way that wasn't as apparent um, back in 2009. Karen, I'm going to give you like 20 or 30 seconds. And I thank you, by the way, because you just had surgery and your voice has been terrific throughout this. I know it's challenging, but it's been terrific. I really appreciate it. Look, I'll be brief on this and tactical um, and the communication communicator in me. It's really, well, you can do all great things. If the people don't know, it doesn't matter. So I think the one other thing that... President Biden understands uh, and has understood, and that I would say President Obama did not do as well, is to campaign for their ideas. You've seen Vice President Harris on the road all across the country making the case and helping to both, again, as I mentioned, get people to get vaccinated, make sure people know that that's an option, campaign for the American Rescue Plan. You've had President Biden also on the campaign trail, on the trail, if you will. And he's back out there today, in fact, talking more uh, about the plan that he, the American Families Plan. And he's put people, you had Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Marcia Fudge, on The View yesterday. So I think they've understood big and bold is beautiful, but you got to make sure people know. I want to thank our panel for what's been a terrific discussion. I want to thank our audience. Thank you, Joe Kennedy. Thank you, Ron Christie. Thank you, Karen Finney. Thank you for Brian Goldsmith. Once again, thank all of you so much. Take care. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future, that's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 